The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I welcome you to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. Today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. He is a former research entomologist with USDA's Agricultural Research Service in Brookings, South Dakota. He is now an independent scientist and a farmer, and he's a weed investigator. He is an applied ecologist, and he's looking at ways to manage insects and weeds so that farms can be productive without harming our precious ecosystems. I was interested in Dr. Lundgren's work because of his reasons for leaving his research position, and about his new path. So, Dr. Lundgren, welcome. Thank you. Well, tell me a little bit about entomology. I'm always curious about how and why people go down that path. What does it mean to be a research entomologist? Well, I was, even from a young age, I've always been interested in a lot of the little things that are affecting our daily lives that we don't always necessarily notice. And I was also really interested in animal biology. And so in taking my undergraduate degree in biology at the University of Minnesota, I took an entomology course, just an intro to entomology, one that we call Bugs for Thugs, you know, the the entomology for non-majors, right? Right. And it was just so exciting. I mean, there was so much to discover, and I'd never realized how the diversity and the absolutely amazing breadth of life that was going on under a microscope, but, I mean, there's shapes and forms and biologies that you can't even contrive in a science fiction novel. Just so captivating. And then I realized, man, I could be a biologist and I could actually get a career and earn money in order to to try to understand the life around us. So it was a great opportunity, and I I put all my chips on the table, and I said, this is the way I want to go. That's wonderful. So you went on then, and you received a Ph.D. in entomology from the University of Illinois. What was it about that particular program that attracted you? Oh Well, it's one of the top entomology programs in the country, number one. uh, Some amazing scientists there. Number two is I had an absolutely amazing advisor, uh, Dr. Rob Wiedemann, who was really important in helping me to formulate how it was that I should be thinking about science. And scientists really need to be philosophers before they are researchers. That's a quote that's sometimes thrown about, but I, I think it's absolutely true. And so entomology at Illinois was really based in the life sciences rather than in the agricultural field. And so we had to learn a lot of the biology of these organisms and come to love these organisms as a species or as as a group of species rather than as something that simply needs to be managed. Oh, you And there's a huge, huge emphasis on outreach and extension there. And so communicating insects and biology and applied ecology to as wide a breadth of people as possible. And that gave me some real opportunities because there's no way to truly understand your field 
until it's yeah trial by fire and experiential learning, right? Yeah. You bring up such a great point about this issue of control. And I pay attention to media messages quite a bit because of my interest in public health and how media drives the way we think about food. And most recently, I've been curious about the way media messages drive our thinking about farming and even about how we manage or control, quote, unquote, pests. And it Mm -hmm. seems like most of the agricultural magazines that I pick up have a dominant narrative, which is one of man controlling pests. You know, there's there's typically an image of a man with, you know, pointing a gun or pointing a finger like it is a gun. And controlling these organisms that are critical. <laughs> you read the labels on pesticides, and it's warrior, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> all of these other names that are very you know, militant, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I look at insects in a much different light. I look at insects as the solution to problems rather than as the problem themselves. And so, when you approach entomology with a pest-centric mentality. You're doomed right from the start because, yeah, there's 3,500 species of insect pests out there, and that seems just so overwhelming. But then you have to realize that for every species of insect pest that's out there, there's actually 1,700 species of insects that are actually helping you or neutral in your system, but that you absolutely need to maintain a complex food web that then can respond to problems within your field. And so when we're just making our decisions based on those few minority insect species out there and ignoring all of the other biodiversity, it is at our detriment. Yeah. I did an interview with Eric Motter with the Xerces Society, and I think he was the first one who enlightened me to this idea of that most insects are good. And yet <laughs> our thinking is that, oh my gosh, you see a bug, you've got to kill it. Right, right. So that has been my mission is to overcome that for the last uh, <laughs> for the last uh, 20 years and hopefully the rest of my life. Well, that's wonderful. Okay, so you left the University of Illinois and you have a you're fresh out of your PhD program. Where did you go next? I moved directly to the USDA Ag Research Service here in Brookings, South Dakota. And what was it about that position that attracted you? Oh, the ability to conduct scientific research and stay networked in with the scientific community. And there was quite a bit of academic freedom. And so I was able to ask the questions that I wanted to ask. And it was great. It was absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, it was, yeah, the benefits of working for, you know, a federal research agency is that, I mean, within academic positions at like a university, there's a lot of expectations in terms of teaching and grant writing and being on committees, and it really can weigh a person down. And so one of the appealing factors with working for the USDA ARS is that you could really focus on asking complex scientific questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what really attracted me to the job. So what happened or what changed? Did you always feel that you had the freedom to ask whatever questions moved you to pursue? Or did you find that at some point those questions were being narrowed? Well, I was, I mean, for the first 
greater than half, I'd say, you know, for the first, you know, seven, eight years of my career with USDA ARS, I mean, I was lighting the world on fire. I'd written a book, I had published well, and I actually, they gave me the Presidential Early Career Award in Science and Engineering, so I got to meet President Obama in the White House for being one of the top young scientists in the country. So fantastic opportunities and the ability to explore topics. But when I started to investigate questions that in my mind were really central to the preservation of our food security, and that was questioning some of the risks associated with pest management practices and farm management practices, that this was deemed controversial and I started to run into some roadblocks that became increasingly less roadblocks and more actual retaliation and deliberate efforts to silence the message that I thought really needed to be told. Hmm. It's such a shame. So I really am fascinated with your research because it focused on, as you say, a controversial class of pesticides called neonicotinoids, although I don't know if I'd use the word controversial. That's how it's been reported in the media. But it seems pretty clear to me, at least from what I've seen in the research, that if we want to move forward, as you say, through a food security perspective, then we might want to practice some precaution and stop using this class of pesticides. But I'll let you tell that story. Mm. So insecticides kill insects. That's their job, right? So it's, it shouldn't be surprising that deploying insecticides has ecological effects, not just ecological, but also human health effects as well. Right. As you probably know well from a dietitian's perspective. And this isn't news. I mean, this is this is something that we confronted from a very, you know, 70 years ago when some of these early classes of insecticides like organochlorines and organophosphates and mm. things like this were really coming on. Things like DDT, 7, a lot of these well-known insecticides that are well-documented as having adverse effects on the environment and non-target species, species that weren't supposed to be killed. So we went through that. And I mean, we all, many of us know Silent Spring and the formation of the EPA was really prompted by the fact that these pesticides were being used indiscriminately and prophylactically and as an insurance policy. And using the best technology and the best science of the day, we thought that they were safe. But as our technology evolves and our ability to ask questions about complex issues like risk assessment, with ecological systems advances, then we realize that these issues are more complex and difficult to predict than initially we thought. And so we went through this. We went through this with DDT is a great example because it is such a high-profile insecticide where we learned that using this indiscriminately was actually a bad business decision. And it ushered in a realm of what we call today integrated pest management, where pesticides were viewed as something to be used as a last resort, not as the first line of defense against insects. And there really was a paradigm shift away from this integrated pest management philosophy back in the early 2000s and even in the late 90s 
with the advent of prophylactic pest management like BT crops, you know, genetically modified BT crops, where the farmers didn't have to think about scouting their fields to know whether or not they had pests anymore. They were able to use this as an insurance policy again. And that was, this philosophy was exacerbated with the development and proliferation of neonicotinoid seed treatments, such that now these neonicotinoids, which are a systemic insecticide, they're coated on the seeds, but then they're taken up and expressed throughout the plant. And these things end up coming out in the leaves and in the roots and in the flowers and in the nectar and in the pollen sometimes too. And this has really been a game changer. This has been a paradigm shift in how we view insects and how we manage insects in this country. And to me, it's in many ways very similar to how we manage pests early on. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are having a conversation with Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, a South Dakota-based entomologist formerly with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And we are talking about his research with ecosystems and, in particular, pesticides called neonicotinoids. Tell me something, Dr. Lundgren. We are taught as dietitians, especially by the larger food industry, the produce people, that small amounts of residues of these insecticides that we would find, certainly with a systemic pesticide, are, are fine. You know, it's just a small amount. We're talking about parts per million, parts per trillion amounts. And yet, that's the level at which hormones are active. That's, that's the level at which drugs are active in our body. So, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this whole systemic nature of these particular pesticides and how these extremely low doses affect the entire ecosystem. Right. So neonicotinoids are treated in very small quantities on the seed themselves, right? Well, uh, small quantities is a relative term, isn't it, as mm -hmm. you were just mentioning. And between 2 and 20%, depending on the plant and the conditions, of the pesticide is actually taken into the plant itself. And then it's expressed throughout the plant, and that, that quantity with, that resides within the plant diminishes as the plant ages, such that oftentimes by the reproductive stages of the plant, like when they're making fruit or seeds or flowers, a lot of that insecticide is out, but not all of it. But the question that came to my mind is, is where the other 98, 80 to 98% of the chemical is going if it's not getting taken up by the plant. And I think that the science is, is growing and has been fairly clear that it's not staying put. It's getting into the soil, and it can be bioactive within the soil for a long time. It's getting into the water systems, and it's affecting aquatic communities now. And it's also being taken up by untreated plants, things like milkweed plants in field margins. And the milkweed is a really important host plant of the monarch butterfly such that as, uh, as agricultural systems have proliferated and, and become more widespread and more simplified, that's reduced a lot of the monarch's habitat, but it's also what's remaining now, at least a portion of it, is contaminated with some of these neonicotinoid seed treatments. Mm -hmm. So there's a, uh, yeah, 
what it comes back down to is that we need to be using insecticides. And I don't, I mean, you know, insecticides are a tool, right? And if a tool is used correctly, then they can be, they, then they can really help things. But if it's used incorrectly or when it's not necessary, then that's not a good decision, not just from an ecological perspective, but also from a farmer's bottom line. And why would you invest in something that you don't necessarily need? Uh-huh. Or why would you invest in something that was harming beneficial insects that would be working on your team in the first place? Right. And this comes back to a really central premise that I really like to promote is, you know, if our discussion is on pesticides, if our discussion is on genetically modified organisms, then really what we're doing is all we're doing is we're slapping Band-Aids on the problem. Mm. The deeper problem that insect pests are an indication of is the the simplification of our food production systems and of our landscapes. And if we solve, you know, the degradation of our soils, then a lot of these other issues like pesticide use and exposure in the environment and, and resistance of weeds to, you know, particular pesticides or low-nutrient food and poor-nutrient food that is coming out of our food production system, a lot of those problems just fall by the wayside. The pollinator crisis. Heal the soil, you're not going to have a bee problem anymore. Hmm. So how are these neonicotinoid pesticides creating such great harm in our ecosystem? Is it through the soil, or is it direct harm to our pollinators, or a little of both? Well, I think that the um, the science is still rolling in on this issue. I think that there's a contamination issue that's going on. These are broad-spectrum insecticides, so they affect numerous groups of insects, not just one or two specific insect species like, or a small handful like, say, a BT corn would potentially do. And so, yes, they are getting into the food webs and they are affecting these food webs. And even if you're reducing species at a low level, but across the board, then that has implications for how resilient that community is to a lot of other perturbations and stressors, things like climate change, things like things like diseases that may be entering into the system. And yeah, pollinators are a great indication, but what we're facing right now is not necessarily a bee problem on its own. We're facing a biodiversity problem. Yeah. You know, we're looking at decreases worldwide in terrestrial vertebrates, things with backbones. We're looking at reductions in bats, birds, butterflies, farmland birds, and entire habitats even, you know, like coral reefs, mangroves. And a lot of this biodiversity loss is linked to our food production systems, mm-hmm. either directly or indirectly. I mean, agroecosystems occupy 40% of the terrestrial land surface of our planet. That means agroecosystems are the largest biome on planet Earth, you know, terrestrial biome, I suppose. And we need to be (laughs) realizing just how expansive this is and how it touches every species on the planet. Yeah. I want our listeners to understand the breadth of this problem Years ago, when I was first starting this program, so we're talking about seven years ago, 
I remember interviewing a seed dealer from South Dakota who at the time told me that it's become increasingly difficult for farmers to choose seeds that are not genetically engineered. And I wonder if you could tell us, what is the freedom out there like for farmers to choose seeds that are not coated with these neonicotinoid pesticides? And are they available? And what percentage of seeds are indeed coated? Within corn systems, which occupies uh, 90, I believe, well, it's between 75 and 95 million acres in the U.S., uh, 5%, approximately 5% of the land surface of our country is planted to corn. And the vast majority, if not all, uh, of that field corn is treated with neonicotinoids, and farmers have a lot of trouble finding untreated seeds. Yeah. Things like soybeans is at a lower level of treatment. There's a little more choice with that, but it's still very difficult for farmers. I mean, they have to make an effort in order to purchase seeds that's not treated. For other crops, I mean, like sunflowers, they actually didn't have, they did not have a code in their computer to be able to sell us untreated sunflower seeds from the sunflower dealer that we were dealing with. And and so they had to give us the seed for our research experiment to compare the efficacy of neonicotinoid seed treatments on sunflowers versus untreated seeds. So the choice and the control of the, or the domination of the market is is certainly an issue. Uh, yeah, certainly an issue. And at this point, I estimated about 13% of the of the land surface of the U.S., continental U.S., is treated with neonicotinoids. That's really shocking news. And I wonder, so I'm thinking now as a nutritionist, and I'm remembering your comments about how these pesticides are systemic, so in other words, you know, dietitians are told, just tell your consumers to wash their fruits and vegetables. It's not going to work that way. No. I wonder now mm-hmm. how these insecticides are affecting the bacteria in our guts. And I wonder if you've thought about that as well. Well, I think you're raising a really important point. Human beings have more bacterial cells in our body than we do have human cells in our body. So from from a biologist standpoint, are we a human or are we a walking sack of bacteria? And, and I think bacteria, it's the latter. <laughs> those, those bacteria do a lot. They affect us a lot. And if we're disrupting those things by what we're eating then that has a, a huge effect on our health and, and our, our behavior. Yeah. So um, the the role of symbiosis like that is, is something to really consider strongly. And I don't know how some of the pesticides that we're using are going to influence that through our food. I think it's something that that's a question that we really need to be asking, isn't it? I think so. And I think that's why we so desperately need independent scientists like yourself yes moving forward, especially ones like yourself who appreciate the beauty and intricacies in our ecosystem and how we're all so dependent on each other. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your new project. You have since left the U.S. Agricultural Research Service, and you have started a new project called Blue Dasher Farm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Right. So, 
One thing that, as a scientist, I was trained to think in a certain way and to approach, uh, and, and the dogma was that, you know, as pests become abundant within agricultural systems, then you, you scout and then you apply pesticides to try to control and react to that pest problem. And that always kind of bothered me, and so I always approach pest management from a biological control perspective, like thinking about how natural enemies and predator ecology would influence those things. But it was it's 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 an important component of pest management, but it's also you know it's on sort of the the margins of of what's usually practiced widely. And so I'd get up in front of farmers, and they didn't seem to be all all that interested in what I had to say at that time. This was um, you know maybe between five and ten years ago. And then I started going out to farmers' fields, and they weren't using insecticides. And these were some of the innovative farmers that were really focused on regenerating soil, what I call regenerative agriculture. Rather than sustaining a broken resource, they're actually trying to, or a degraded resource, they're trying to regenerate that resource, right, through through diversity and through lack of disturbance, so re- reducing or eliminating tillage. And these guys were doing things that, I was told it couldn't happen, right? And what they were told couldn't happen from the science. And in fact, the science, rather than helping to innovate food production, was actually hampering food production, you know, the innovation of these guys, because the scientists couldn't necessarily replicate what these farmers were doing in their land in particular regions, like maybe it was in the panhandle of Nebraska, where it was more arid, things were, I mean, the science was saying you shouldn't be using things like cover crops out here because your water is so limited. And so I'd go out to the farmer's fields and it's like, you guys are using cover crops really well and it's actually improving your, your water retention uh, within that soil. And so I realized that there was a real need for a transformational change in how we're producing food that's more in line with with ecological principles that's not a that's not a complete abandonment of the current paradigm but i think that it is it's transformational enough that we're looking at redesigning systems and that i think is going to be key to us moving forward as a society these transformational changes that need to happen these shifts in the paradigm don't come from the government they don't come from university systems or large research, uh, you know, organizations or agencies. They come from the bottom up, and it's already happening in this country. But what's what's alarming is that the science isn't supporting this. And so, I made a very uh, nerve-shaking decision. My my family and 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 I and my current lab crew as well, that we really need to help these guys that are on the front edge to develop systems and take what it is that they're doing on their farms and make it transferable and scalable to a wide swath of the farming community. Dr. Lundgren, unfortunately, the show is only 30 minutes, so I'm going to have to end our conversation. No, don't apologize. I would love to have you back, actually, and yeah. have you talk more about what you're witnessing on the field and on the farm. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, of course, 
Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, former research entomologist with USDA and now an independent scientist on Blue Dasher Farm. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have to have you back, Dr. Lundgren. You're, you're a fascinating guest. Thank you for spending well, thank time you for with me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that.